Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and this week, Chelsea Patterson-Sobelik, Travis Wusso, and I are going to be talking about three adoption issues you should be aware of. Chelsea, Travis, thanks for joining me back here around this virtual roundtable. Hey, hey. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, hey, that's a new one. That's a new one. I love it. She was workshopping that. I heard her practicing it earlier. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know if it was the, uh, yeah, like if it's just like it's springtime. So, you know, flowers are blooming. We're going with new things. Pep in the step. A little pep in the step. Uh, (laughs) That is awesome. Well, we wanted to talk this week about adoption um, because our our pro-life ethic here at the ERLC and our ethic of human dignity being made in the image of God, it, it really colors all the kinds of work that we do across the organization, um, whether it is equipping churches or speaking in the public square into policy issues. Uh, and, and Underneath all of that, uh, in a way, is also our, uh, or not so much underneath it, but from that is also our passion for uh, adoption. Uh, many people first learned about our boss, ERC President Russell Moore, through his book, Adopted for Life. Uh, adoption is a is a really important issue to us here at the ERLC, both in our policy advocacy in Washington, D.C., as well as our ministry equipping that we do in all the other parts of the ERLC's work. And so uh, we thought it'd be interesting because there's a lot of adoption issues going on right now, both policy-wise and also ministry-wise. Uh, that we would take some time here on the Capital Conversations podcast to talk about three adoption issues we think you, our audience, our listeners, should be aware of as you're coming here to the roundtable. So the the first issue that we're going to talk about is the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on adoption. And so, Travis, I want to start with you to talk about the impact of the pandemic on adoption. And while there are effects in adoption policy from COVID-19, and, and we'll certainly get there, I was particularly struck by a recent podcast episode from our friends at Lifeline Child Services titled COVID One Year Later. I'll link to that episode in the show notes in case folks want to listen. I didn't know necessarily what to expect when I was listening to that show, you know, thinking, oh, this is interesting. They're reflecting on a year into COVID, and I thought it might be about adoption internationally and the policy changes that they've seen and everything kind of coming back online to get families united with their with their children. But it was actually a conversation about their parenting coaching and the effects of this year on families. So uh, Chelsea and her husband are expecting adoptive parents. My wife and I parented a baby who grew into a toddler during this pandemic. Uh, But Travis, you and your wife have a full house of school-age children. Uh, And, you know, really the effect of the pandemic on adoption is also the effect of the pandemic on family life. So I thought we'd start there. As you look back, we've been in this for a year Uh, and still in our Zoom calls, and right now, while we're recording a podcast every once in a while, we see one of your girls walk in behind you. You're all still there together. What's been good for family life, and what's been bad and and hard for family life this last year? And 
How are you thinking about all that as we come up on the year of it? Hopefully there's brighter days ahead. Like what's important for family life moving forward out of this year, unlike any other? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the good. Um, in, in some ways, this last year has reminded me of the times that follow big moves. We, we did um, a couple international moves in 2015 and 16. And one of the effects of those kinds of things, and, and Jeff, you guys moved across the country, so you can probably relate to this too, is, you know, you get to the new place and you don't have any friends, you don't have anything to do. You know, your, your schedule is like, you know, all of a sudden very clear. Um, and, you know, every night you're just sort of looking at each other like, you know, what, what are we going to do to make friends today? You know, and there's, there's a sort of, you know, I mean, that it, it, it can produce its own kind of loneliness that's very sad. But I think in some ways moves also are, are a gift because you get to decide again what's important. You get to decide again what what are the building blocks of life that make they're going to help us thrive uh, in this new season. And so I think there there's a sense in which this last year has been like that. You know, we, you know, all, all of our dance cards are completely empty. In fact, they are gone, our dance cards were confiscated. And so we all sort of had a chance to decide like what's, you know, what are our mornings going to look like? Now that, I mean, there's literally nothing, I mean, we're, we're the only ones who get to decide what what that looks like. Uh, what do our evenings look like? And so, you know, I think for us, this last year has been, you know, we, we've been able to develop some really good habits as a family in terms of, you know, reading the Bible together and praying together as a family that that if we were busy and if I was traveling and if, um, you know, Katie had events, uh, you know, all through the week would have just been much harder. And it happened at a time that was so, is so formative for our kids who are second and fourth grade. And so, my my wife's birthday was a couple months ago and you know we all went out to dinner the you know the four of us you know we took our kids which you know it's just kind of weird i mean i can't really imagine us doing that um if not for the last year of us all living together and you know spending every waking minute together yeah more than just living together but yeah. constant living together yeah yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah and so and I, and I think that's the you know that's the hard thing is that you know i i think you know, I, I feel like, and I, I I know that in my conversations with my friends who are parents, you know, that's the hard thing is you don't feel like you ever get a break. I mean, you don't have any chance to sort of step away from your family. Your kids see every bit of you, the good and the bad. And, you know, you don't have a, you know, you don't have those moments, whether that's like sitting at an airport terminal or just sitting at your office to sort of recharge and, and recoup. And, um, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's led to this, you know, to a feeling of, of real exhaustion, you know, and I, and I think in, in some ways it's sort of leading to some of the tension that we feel in our culture right now of everybody being really ready to put this pandemic behind us, but it's not behind us yet. Um, and I, I think that's, I think that's a big part of it. I've got this note on my uh, bookshelf behind me from March 15th, 2020. And it was a quote I heard in a uh, sermon we listened to online that said, let this interruption to our lives be a an opportunity to reset our routines. 
Uh, and we've kind of had that. Uh, it used to sit in front of our TV throughout the uh, <laughs> early stage of the pandemic. It's now it's a good place to put it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why it was there. Uh, and now it's on our it's on our bookshelf. So that's that's a, that's a good word on on family life. Chelsea, I want to come to you now and, and talk policy. So how how did the COVID-19 pandemic affect adoption policy? And, you know, here here we are a year into this thing. And, and it does certainly uh, all signs point to brighter days ahead uh, for the end of this, uh, the end of this plague, as Dr. Moore is fond of saying and calling it. But, you know, how did it affect adoption policy? And what's the state of adoptions, both domestically and internationally right now? Sure. So I'm going to first hit on domestic and then we'll go to international. But I think it's important to note that um, some of the stressors that lead to children entering into foster care and then um, lead to those some of those children being eligible for adoption um, certainly, certainly increased during the COVID-19 pandemic, such as, you know, a lack of family support, um, you know, or that support changing and looking differently. Um, Certainly, substance use um, skyrocketed during the past year and some change, which led to, you know, mental health uh, conditions, depression, anxiety, etc. And then there is also a spike in um, abuse cases as well. Um, So all of those things were happening simultaneously. Uh, Children were not in schools or in kind of the safe spaces where other people could see see them and, you know, see how they were being treated at home. So I think it's important to know what our domestic system looked like. Um, And so there's certainly been a lot of steps in the past year, you know, in every uh, COVID relief package, there's been targeted aid for um, children and youth in foster care um, to help them uh, there or as they're transitioning out. Uh, But then to mess or internationally, um, of course, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic affected intercountry adoption, um, namely slowing down the process. like extremely slowing down the process. Families that were able to travel, you know, had to go quarantine for two weeks in country before they were even eligible to to pick up their child and then come home. So there were a lot of additional safety nets um, put in place. But then there are still uh, countries that are not allowing families who've been matched with children to go pick up their children. I know uh, David Platt, uh, pastor of McLean Bible Church, here in the D.C. area has been uh, shared his story online of how they're uh, planning to go pick up their, they were just days away from picking up their their son in China, and they still haven't been able to go get him, and um, multiple families still haven't been able to travel. So I know our State Department is working with um, their counterparts over in China uh, to navigate these issues so that um you know, they can, families can hopefully safely go pick up their children um, soon. I I truly cannot imagine uh, what that time of waiting is like. And, you know, the, the pandemic was just such a wrecking ball to so many lives, not only in the lives lost to this horrific virus, more than half a million here in the United States alone, but the toll globally that that is on families. I mean, it's just, it's it's so hard to comprehend. Uh, but then all the ripple effects as we're as we're talking about today, I mean, I, I can't imagine those uh, those families and, and hope that they're able to be reunited soon. The the next 
adoption related issue that we want to cover is a policy that we've been advocating for now uh, long before the the pandemic. Uh, and like so much in our policy work, it's like pushing a boulder up a hill uh, as an advocate. Uh, sometimes you're catching those boulders as they come down and you're advocating. Sometimes you're pushing them up and, and continuing to make it a priority year after year. So Chelsea, one of those that we have talked about on Capital Conversations before, but haven't talked about it recently is the Adoptee Citizenship Act. Tell us about this bill and the problem that it seeks to solve. Yeah, Jeff. So prior to the year 2000, um, any international adoptee was not automatically a U.S. citizen. They had to go through a long, arduous process of being naturalized. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of uh, snafus in there, such as you know lost paperwork, families not knowing they had to, to take these final steps. Um, etc. So there was actually um, a Senate staffer. We had her on uh, at some point last year who had uh, some children adopted from, I think, Russia, working for a senator and realized that this was an issue and it could be fixed. So she helped work on legislation called the Child Citizenship Act, and it was signed into law by then-President Clinton. The issue was that that bill excluded anyone who was 18 or older at the time the bill was signed into law, which uh, left an, a population of adoptees without their U.S. citizenship. So these are uh, people who, many of whom were adopted as um, infants or very young children. Their adoptions were finalized both in country and in the U.S., but they they got caught up in that loophole and they don't have their full U.S. citizenship. So uh, this bill, the adoption Citizenship Act uh, doesn't create new policy. It just uh, goes back and closes that loophole in the Child Citizenship Act and grants them their, their citizenship. And one of the ways that the ERLC has been talking about this is when you understand adoption, once an adoption is finalized, that, that person should be treated under U.S. law as a natural-born child. And so it's it's very much a justice issue and, and righting that wrong and a family issue. So I was very encouraged. I've, I've been working on this bill for a number of years in various capacities. But um, last Congress, the bill in the House side had almost 100 co-sponsors, and it was extremely bipartisan. You know, there was everyone from Representative Biggs, who leads the House Freedom Caucus, to Representative Representative Omar. So it was very broadly bipartisan, which is, you know, very encouraging for uh, bills that we work on to see to see that that bipartisanship. Um, so we're we're hopeful that this this Congress will be the year that it's able to to get passed and signed into law. So Chelsea or, you know, maybe Travis, you want to jump in here as well. Help people understand why something can be that bipartisan and yet still not become a law. So I don't know if this is like schoolhouse rock here or what, but like help help us understand how when something, you know, how it could be, how it could have that many co-sponsors on both sides of the aisle. And yet here we are still advocating for it because it hasn't yet become a law. It's a great question, Jeff. And I think one that, you know, a lot of people are asking if this a bill has so many co-sponsors and so so broadly um Supportive, why why hasn't it been signed into law yet? A couple of quick things to to note. Um, number one is um, a bill needs to go through markup in the relative committee. And so that process has to happen. And that can sometimes take a while because there's a lot of bills in 
the House and the Senate. Uh, number two is floor time um, in the Senate or um, either passing the bill as a standalone piece of legislation in the House or attaching it to, to a broader piece of legislation. So there's definitely a lot of kind of behind the curtain conversations and, and negotiations and, um, you know, a lot of staff level conversations to see, you know, kind of strike when the iron is hot and when and how a bill um, moves forward. So we're again, we're hopeful that this uh, the stars will align this Congress again. There's there's still a lot of broad support for the bill. Right. You know, broadly speaking, there are a lot of really great ideas in Washington that haven't become law. And, you know, Chelsea highlighted you know, a couple of reasons why that's why that's the case. One of the other challenges is that in our system, one member, especially one member in the Senate, can really hold things up. And if they have an idea or if they have questions that they want to ask or they're just not sure or they, you know, or it gets, you know, the bill gets uh, snaggled up in politics, you know, there, there are lots of reasons why good bills don't pass. And so there's an element of advocacy that really boils down to helping to just keep the skids greased in front of a bill as it moves along and continuing to push and push and push. And it's, it's work that is, um, is, uh, so it's, it's work that like, it's work that's not, you know, it's like not always fun, but it's important. No, I'm not sure that I would say that. I, I mean, I think that it's, I, I think it's really fun and interesting to sort of figure out what are the problems that's holding up a bill. Sometimes okay. it, you know, sometimes it requires, involved. yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes it can take five meetings to figure out what's really going on with uh, with a particular hold on a bill or, or why, you know, sometimes it boils down to a, a staffer has a problem with the bill and to, the senator has put a hold on it and the senator doesn't even know that the staffer has put a hold on the bill. I mean, that happens all <laughs> the time. There's some pretty good, yeah, there's some no, pretty good No, it happens all the time. With, yeah, with so that, I, yeah. No, I think it's, it, it's, it, it's really interesting work. It, it can be difficult to explain and uh, without boring people to tears, but I, I love it. I think it's great. And, and Chelsea, I mean, folks can't see you cause they're just listening <laughs> to this, but that was a pretty see, epic hair flip. Yeah. You seem to agree that this, that this work is fun too. Absolutely. I mean, of course, broadly the work is fun, but the particular work of like, this bill has so much bipartisan support. Why is it not passed yet? That still uh, is energizing. Absolutely. And I think it's fun because each bill is totally different. So there's different players involved and committees and staff and, yeah. you know, news, news drivers. And yeah, I think it's I have a lot of fun. All right. Well, let's let's wrap out here for our third story, uh, third adoption issue that we think you should know about. And it's related to child welfare providers in their religious liberty. So, Travis, I want to come to you. Looking ahead, we are waiting. It could be any any day now. It will likely be this summer. But we're waiting on an important decision from the Supreme Court in the case Fulton versus Philadelphia. Uh, this is a Supreme Court case that uh, our friends at Beckett uh, have been working on. And we had uh, Lori Windham of Beckett on the podcast last November actually recorded with her the morning after election night, <laughs> November 2020, uh, to talk to her about arguing uh, arguing this case uh, the day after the election uh, in 2020. So I'll link, I'll link to that in the show notes because it's fascinating to hear from Lori as she argued before the court. Uh, but 
I think we need to cover it again. This is a really important case. So Travis, tell us why it's important and why it matters for child welfare. Well, I, th- I think there, there's a chance that Fulton may, may end up being one of the most important religious liberty cases in, in 20 years, uh, depending on how the, how the opinion ends up getting written. You know, it's a case that, that we are watching very closely where this case, this case arises out of the city of Philadelphia, where the city basically told Catholic charities and other child welfare providers that if they did not, uh, that they would be required uh, to violate their uh, religious beliefs in order to continue to participate uh, in uh, in the foster care program. And so uh, Sharon L. Fulton, who is a foster parent in uh, Philadelphia, uh, sued the city of Philadelphia. And that case is now, um, as you mentioned, it is sitting before the Supreme Court. Uh, that opinion could come down any day. It was argued early in the session. And so there are some speculation that we might get an opinion sooner rather than later. My money is still, this will be one of the very last uh, one of the very last cases, but why this case is potentially so important is that it it is it is a case that will be decided squarely on the free exercise clause, namely what it, what are the rights that uh, faith based adoption providers have to exercise uh, their faith as they serve the public, and so it it creates an opportunity for the Supreme Court to uh, revisit an an old case called Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, which uh, uh, really narrowed the scope of what uh, of what the free exercise clause meant, and so we're we're very hopeful that this Fulton case will result in a broadening back out of that uh, of that jurisprudence. So we we talked a bit about that uh, with uh, Lori, and and so to, to go deeper on that, I'd recommend that podcast episode. But you know, the the last thing I would say about this is that you know this this is a really this is a live issue in a lot of places. Uh, it's a live issue in in uh, I mean Michigan. And, and Philadelphia are the two most recent uh, places where this has been a problem, but but Catholic Charities currently does not operate in the District of Columbia because DC uh, has uh, has a similar set of rules. There are now I think uh, nine other jurisdictions outside of uh, Philly and uh, Michigan that have chosen to exclude faith based uh, adoption providers. So, you know this it's a live issue. We've been working on passing bills at the states to provide uh, to provide protections. It's something we've been working on in in a number of different places, um, and hopefully. This Supreme Court case will mean that those laws are no longer needed because it clarifies the the right of religious uh, the the right of faith based adoption providers uh, to exercise their beliefs while taking care of our country's most vulnerable. Absolutely. For more on that, I again will link to the show notes in that conversation that we had with uh, with Lori Windham of Beckett. It was really helpful to understand. Uh, even at a deeper level uh, than what Travis just laid out, what all is going on there and why it matters. All right, Chelsea, Travis, we are now privileged, really, uh, humbled, honored, astounded, really, <laughs> I guess is the, is the word, to be joined here at the at the back end of this week's episode of Capital Conversations. We're going to break the fourth wall and be joined by Gary Lancaster, our audio producer, editor, extraordinaire, sometimes a wizard, making us sound better than we deserve. You know, people often ask, like, when you guys record the, the podcast, is it all in one sitting or or what's going on there? And I usually just say, yes, we're all one take wonders, um, <laughs> which is not true. Uh, and I don't say that. Uh, and, but if it sounds like that, it's because of, of Gary Lancaster's work. So, Gary, 
Do we have you? Have we successfully broken the fourth wall? Jeff, you have successfully entered the fourth dimension. And I just hope I can live up to an intro like that. Well, Gary, we are excited to have you on this week because we wanted to say our gratitude and our thanks. Uh, I want to, uh, unfortunately, let everybody know, unfortunate for us, but fortunate for Gary, he has another amazing opportunity uh, that he will be going to. So this is his last week with us here at the ERLC, working on our audio resources. So we're really excited for Gary's new opportunity, but wanted to have him here on the show real quick to introduce him to all of y'all. Uh, so this this is also a way of uh, explaining the significant drop off in audio quality that you're about to uh, about to experience <laughs> as as listeners, but. Well, ha- I'm not. That's a compliment, them, Gary. So to, to 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 the to the great work that Gary does. <laughs> That's a great compliment, Travis. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I trust that the Lord is going to keep the RLC in good hands. Absolutely. Well, Gary, we are just so um, grateful for the time that we have gotten to virtually spend with you, um, and just so grateful for all your hard work. So, can you tell um, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? You know what. What do you enjoy most about the the work that you, you've gotten to do over the past decade with us? Well, I appreciate you guys having me on here as much as I tried to avoid doing this. <laughs> but then um, let me just say, Jeff, to your point, right, you said this was a fortunate move for me. And, and while I do agree with that, it's also bittersweet to be stepping away from the RLC and working alongside this team. Chelsea, to answer your questions a little bit about myself, um, as people may have heard over the years, specifically from Jeff, that uh, I am from Texas, and I am a lifelong Texas A&M Aggie fan. Well, I can't say that I attended school there. They just didn't offer much in the way of uh, the media production space. But I will say, I will always look for an opportunity to root for the childhood home team. Where did you go to school? Yeah, that's actually what got us to Middle Tennessee. I ended up going to Belmont University in Nashville. Yeah, Belmont Belmont's a pretty decent school for audio. Yeah, yeah you know, it's not per- bad. Careers, right? It's all right. <laughs> Although, Gary, does does A&M have any solid programs in any subject? Ooh. I am I'm <sighs> less clear about that. Well, you know, Travis, uh, I think people like my family members and, and Jeff and your old boss, Philip Bethancourt, they're doing all right. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> he brought the heat. Gary, I'm curious, what has it been like to edit, which, which means you have to listen and spend more time with uh, with this show than we even ourselves are spending recording it. Mm-hmm. We're, we're doing deep dives into policy, into politics, uh, different news events. You know, you you live in uh, in the Nashville area. Uh, you're not in Washington, D.C. I could imagine right. some of this is like listening to paint dry. Uh, for, for you, if you're not necessarily, you know, of this sort of, uh, it's like an insult to yourself, right? Political there. world. Well, you know, we try to make it interesting to everybody, but I think you have to be, you know, you have to be engaged and interested in politics and, and policy and all of that. But what has that been like editing this show, uh, away from Washington, DC? Yeah. I mean, it's not my number one interest in life, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, what I can say is that. Through working with the Capital Conversations podcast, it's given me an opportunity to really see why this work matters. There's a lot that you do that makes it accessible and helps the everyday person to understand why this work matters to the kingdom. 
a quick note. Uh, one of the things that I've really enjoyed is when you guys have been able to bring in personal stories, um, like especially with the, the immigration things. You guys have had people that have actually walked through that and sharing those stories and then further explaining, this is why what we're doing here matters. Hmm. And those were certainly a highlight of my time working on the Capital Conversations podcast. Hmm. So, Gary, over the last 10 years, as you've been uh, been working as an audio engineer, I mean, the, the podcast movement, you know, started, you know, grew from basically a, a little cult thing that a few people, you know, did to, uh, you know, becoming a, a pretty dominant way of, of, uh, of reaching an audience and building an audience mm-hmm. and getting information. I mean, I, I don't even know how many podcasts I listen to every, um, every week. What, what's, what is that, what's that been like? And, and, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you have any, you know, any reflections on, you know, watching this medium grow over the last year or over the last 10 years. Well, not just grow, but grow to a point where you're now going to go help uh, a large organization, a large media organization, uh, with their growth of a new podcast network. I mean, now we're into podcasting right. networks. So, like, it's now grown to a point where it's a full-time uh, job career for you. You're spot on with that. Like you said, 10 years ago, this whole thing was just starting. And uh, not very many people knew what, what podcasting was or what what is a podcast. Before that, to get any sort of um, produced message out to the world, you're talking about blog posts for the everyday person. But other than that, you're looking at traditional media like uh, radio and TV. And those are very expensive mediums to get into. And with that, I mean, you're looking at being on a schedule and your message airing at a certain time on a certain day. And that was the opportunity for people to hear that message. And if they missed it, they missed it. And so now with podcasting, you've got on-demand content that's able to be produced whenever and wherever and released whenever and wherever you want. And then you've got the whole factor of creating a personal connection with listeners. Podcasting gives you an opportunity to create this immersive conversation that draws your listener in as if they were there around the table with you. And you don't get that with anything else. You know, I am just, I'm really... Oh, man, sad to see, uh, sad to see you go working with you here at the ERLC uh, has been just the greatest privilege and and so much fun. It's it's been fun to uh, and and not just work together, but also our friendship across across country. As you you know, uh, send me uh, send me photos of the barbecue that you're smoking there in in Tennessee to let Tennessee know that Texas barbecue still uh, still <laughs> is atop the game as king. Yes, uh, yes it is. Talking about when the Aggies, uh, you know, it, although it's uh, though it's not f- a frequent competition anymore. When the Aggies do play the Longhorns and beat them, like a few weeks ago, they did on the baseball diamond. Talking about that, so man, your your friendship has meant the world to us here at uh, here at ERLC, and uh, truly, you are uh, so gifted and talented. And I'm excited for, uh, for more people to get to benefit from your skills and your service. Uh, but I know from, from me, man, we're going to miss you, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for this show here, here. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate those kind words. Thank you. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast, thanks to Gary Lancaster from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community. 
Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. This really will help others find our show. Resources from today's episode, like that podcast with Lifeline that I mentioned earlier, or the uh, articles or other podcasts at ERLC that we mentioned, they are available in the show notes and as always at ERLC.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week.